0: Let us pray. Almighty God, your word is vast and deep. You open your mouth in parables. You utter dark sayings from of old. Soften our hearts. Let us not be confounded by your word. Send your spirit to enlighten our minds that we might understand the scriptures and find there the living word, your son, our savior, Jesus Christ. In his name we pray. Amen. Judges chapter 13 tells us of another cycle of sin and judgment and lamentation and deliverance. Verse 1 tells us that after the judge Abdon died, the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. So the Lord gave them into the hand of the Philistines for 40 years. Now, Genesis 10, verse 14, uh, tells us that the Philistines are descendants of Egypt. They're descendants of Egypt. So symbolically, the Philistines will kind of play that Egyptian role in the stories of Judges and into the book of Samuel. Like the Egyptians, the Philistines have become oppressors of Israel. And as he did at the Exodus, God will raise up a new Moses to defeat this new egypt now moses we know was special we're told about the wondrous events that surrounded his birth in those first chapters of exodus well this judge is special too and so we learn of his birth in judges 13 which we'll touch on briefly here chapter 13 verse 2 tells us that there was a man from the tribe of dan named manoah and it says his wife In Hebrew literally his woman was barren and had no children now as you go on to read chapter 13 we won't get into it in depth this morning but as you do you find out that as is often the case in Scripture the woman is the more interesting character in the story so why are we not told her name I don't know the answer to that question but I will say that I think it's significant that we simply know her as the woman because That will cause the careful student of scripture to identify her with the woman, the woman that we hear about in Genesis 3.15, where God said to the serpent, I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. Now, we spoke at length about this prophecy uh, a lot last week. The war between the woman and the serpent, between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. It's one of the major themes running through scripture. Last week in Judges chapter 4, we saw two women, two iterations of this woman typology. We saw Deborah, judge mother of Israel, and we saw Jael, the serpent crusher. Two women who warred with the serpents who slithered into the garden of Israel, Now, those women we saw won their battles, but the war is far from over. And so Judges 13 presents us with another woman, and her seed is threatened as well, for she is barren. Now, after the fall, this is often the case for the woman. She will have distress in childbearing and in the fear of death, and she will fear that the promised seed will never be born. What do we see in Genesis? All of the wives of the patriarchs are barren. Sarah, Rebecca, Rachel. This is because the promised seed cannot come by the power of human flesh alone. It requires the power of God. Only God can make the barren womb fruitful. Only God can provide the promised Redeemer. And so we see the promised seed, whether that's Isaac or Jacob or Joseph, they're all unlikely births. They are born to women who had been barren. So the student of Scripture hears here in Judges 13 that Manoah's wife is barren and they think God's about to do it again. This child will be special. He will be the serpent-crushing seed of the woman. And indeed, that is what happens. The angel of the Lord appears to the woman. He says, you shall conceive and bear a son. That phrase only appears here in the Bible until much later when it is picked up by the prophet Isaiah who says, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son. And you all know the other place where that appears in scripture. When another angel tells another woman of another impossible birth in the Gospel accounts of the Nativity of our Lord. The angel of the Lord tells the wife of Manoah, You shall conceive and bear a son, therefore be careful and drink no wine or strong drink and eat nothing unclean. No razor shall come upon his head, for the child shall be a Nazarite to God from the womb, and he shall begin to save Israel from the hand of the Philistines. You shall bear a son, and he shall be a savior. Again, I remind you of the gospel story where the angel says to Joseph, She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. So when you hear that passage at Christmas time this year, I want you to remember that this is an echo of Judges 13. And the child that is born here verse 7 so then drink no wine or strong drink and eat nothing unclean for the child shall be a Nazarite to god from the womb to the day of his death now i wish we had time to talk more about what a Nazarite was and all that it symbolized uh, but the truth is we aren't exactly sure <laughs> and in any case that's not really what this sermon is about but For now just let's say that israelites could take a special vow which in hebrew made them a nazir a word that means separated it was a vow to accomplish some special work some extraordinary labor for god the nazirite could not cut his hair until the labor was completed he could not drink wine while fulfilling the vow Here, even the mother cannot drink wine, because what the mother drinks nourishes the child. Now, any Israelite could undertake a Nazarite vow for a limited time, but Scripture tells us of three individuals who were Nazarites their whole life. Do you know who the other two are? It's Samuel and John the Baptist. They're said to be Nazarites for their whole lives. Now, do we know anything about Samuel and John's mothers and the circumstances under which they were born? Oh, that's right. They were born to barren mothers as well. So that's interesting. Now, there's a lot more that happens in chapter 13, but for our purpose, I I simply want you to see what's being shown us here. This, uh, that this story with Manoah and his wife, shows us another iteration of that war between the woman and the serpent, between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. And I want you to see that this child is born from a barren womb, which means his birth is a demonstration of the power of God. And this puts him squarely in the company of sons of promise throughout Scripture. And I want you to also be aware that this child is a Nazarite, which means he is called to a holy vocation, a holy work and labor for the Lord. He is called by the Lord, and he will do mighty things for the Lord. So skip down to 13, verse 24. And the woman bore a son and called his name Samson. Samson is the Hebrew word for the son, S-U-N. Uh, with the diminutive ending. So Samson means little son. And we will see that this is very fitting. Judges presents Samson as the answer to Deborah's hope from back in chapter 5. She's saying, so may all your enemies perish, O Lord, but your friends be like the sun as he rises in his might. Today we will see Samson as that son as the son of psalm 19 which comes out like a bridegroom leaving his chamber and like a strong man runs its course with joy today we see samson the little son as a mighty bridegroom and as a strong man running amok in philistia and samson rises in might from the moment he's born as verse 24 goes on to say and the young man grew and the lord blessed him And the Spirit of the Lord began to stir him. Now, first off, when we see the Spirit stirring, we might think of Genesis 1, where the Spirit hovers over the waters at creation. And so that cues us in that the birth of Samson is a new creation, a new beginning for Israel. But it also brings up another significant aspect of the story of Samson. Did you know that Samson is the most spiritual man in the Old Testament? Now, some of his antics later on might make us kind of question that, but it's true. The Spirit is said to rush upon Samson uh, some five times during this short story. No one else in the Old Testament comes close to that. In terms of interaction with the Spirit of God, no Old Testament saint has more than Samson. So the story of Samson might kind of reinforce us to re or force us to rethink our view of spirituality and being filled with the Holy Spirit and what that means because as one commentator says when the spirit fills Samson things get broken and people get hurt But it's important that we recognize the spirit of God is uniquely active in the judgeship of Samson because it reinforces that lesson we already learned in his nativity. All of this is God's work. All of this is God's work. It is God's spirit blowing through Samson. God is the one who begins to save Israel from the hand of the Philistines. So buckle up because this shaggy-headed teetotaler is filled to the brim with the spirit and he's about to go old testament on the philistines (laughs) the first thing he does in judges chapter 14 is to tell mom and dad that he's going to marry a philistine girl chapter 14 verse 2 i saw one of the daughters of the philistines at timnah now get her for me as my wife see the dude's crazy already right Doesn't he know that God specifically said the Israelites were not to intermarry with the people of the land? His father and mother said to him, Oy, Samson, is there not a woman among the daughters of your relatives or among all our people that you must go and take a wife from the uncircumcised Philistines? I'm sure that's exactly how it went. But Samson said to his father, Get her for me, for she is right in my eyes. Now, I know what you're thinking, right? The holy roller already rolled right off the road to heaven. First Philistine girl he sees, and he's overcome by lust, and he's ready to chuck the word of God like the rapper from his bazooka bubblegum. But before you start thinking you're the judge here, look at verse 4. His father and mother did not know that it was from the Lord, for he was seeking an opportunity against the Philistines. It was from the Lord. Samson has a plan, and the plan is inspired. This potential marriage is not Samson fulfilling his lust, but Samson fulfilling his calling. And we'll see how that plays out as we go. Verse 5, Then Samson went down with his father and mother to Timnah, that's where the girl is from, and they came to the vineyards of Timnah. And behold, a young lion came toward him, roaring, Then the spirit of the Lord rushed upon him, and although he had nothing in his hand, he tore the lion in pieces as one tears a young goat. But he did not tell his father or mother what he had done. Just as Adam encountered a serpent in the garden, so Samson encounters a lion in the vineyard. But Samson is a better Adam. He defeats the lion. He tears the lion in pieces. You know, the way one tears a young goat, right? You all know how to tear a young goat, right? It's just like that. That's how he did it. How is Samson able to defeat a lion with his bare hands? Now, in the picture book, Samson is always portrayed as like the Mr. Universe of the Bible, right? He's big, and he's tall, and he's muscle-bound. The Bible never actually says anything about his physique, In fact, the opposite is likely true because later on we're going to see everyone wants to know where Samson's strength comes from, which is not a question if a guy has 24-inch biceps, right? Samson's not a bodybuilder. What does the text say? The spirit of the Lord rushed upon him. That's how he's able to defeat the lion. Now, I would remind you that the Hebrew word for spirit is the same as the word for breath or for wind. The Lord breathed life into the first Adam, and he now breathes life into this better Adam, quickening him, enlivening him, strengthening him, filling him with the same rushing wind that blew a path through the Red Sea to deliver God's people. God is the one who tears the lion. Now, the lion has to be symbolic of something, right? I mean, that's how the Bible rolls. What do you think the lion symbolizes? Who is the predator who wants to devour Israel? The lion represents the Philistines, doesn't it? I'll show you here. We got here in verse 5, a young lion came toward him roaring. Then the spirit of the Lord rushed upon him. He tore the lion in pieces. Compare that to what happens in the next chapter, 15 verse 14. The Philistines came shouting to meet him. Then the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon him, and the ropes that were on his arms became as flax that has caught fire, and his bonds melted off in his hands. The same action. The lion is parallel to the Philistines. The lion is a foreshadowing of the Philistines. This is an enacted prophecy, an enacted prophecy. The Philistines are a lion ready to pounce on Israel in the garden, in the promised land, but Samson is the bigger lion. And he will tear them apart. The Philistines are Scar. Samson is Mufasa, right? Yes, I know that analogy breaks down if you follow it too long. But Samson is the bigger lion because Yahweh is the king of the jungle. And Yahweh breathes his own spirit into Samson. Verse 7, then Samson went down and talked with the woman, and she was right in Samson's eyes. Again, this is not about her appearance. Samson judges that she is right for the opportunity that he is seeking, an opportunity to confront the Philistines. Verse 8, after some days he returned to take her, and he turned aside to see the carcass of the lion, and behold, there was a swarm of bees in the body of the lion and honey he scraped it out into his hands and went on eating as he went and he came to his father and mother and gave some to them and they ate but he did not tell them that he had scraped the honey from the carcass of the lion. Now, If that lion represents Philistia what could be the symbolism of the honey? By defeating the Philistines Samson is going to bring sweetness and rejuvenation to Israel. Remember Canaan was the land flowing with milk and honey, but right now the Philistines are gobbling up all that goodness that the Lord had promised to Israel. So if oppressed Israel is going to taste that goodness, someone is going to have to come break open Philistia and take it back. Now Samson doesn't tell his parents about it because he's forming a plan and this secrecy will be part of his plan. It kind of reminds us the way that Jesus Warned his disciples not to tell people that he was the Messiah, right? It's a secret that Jesus wanted people to discover on their own and at the right time in the fullness of time. Samson has a secret, too. Verse 10. His father went down to the woman and Samson prepared a feast there for so the young men used to do. As soon as the people saw him, they brought 30 companions to be with him. This was the customary provision for a wedding feast. Samson has to be provided with a bridal party because he's not part of the Philistine community. He's an Israelite. And this is all part of his plan. Verse 12 And Samson said to them, Let me now put a riddle to you. I told you this dude was crazy, right? He tells riddles now? What is he, a hobbit? A Mad Hatter? Some Batman villain? Here he is, surrounded by 30 enemies of his people and he starts throwing out brain teasers. Now remember, the Philistines are descendants of Egypt, and the Philistines are lions. Does anybody know the lion-like creature that famously guarded the temples of Egypt? What's that called? Sphinx, right? Yeah, Sphinx. It's a monstrous creature with the body of a lion and the head of a woman, and I'm sure you've seen the pictures of these things. Uh, The Sphinx was a Riddler, too, or at least the famed Sphinx of Thebes in Greece was, she asked a riddle of all who wished to enter the city of Thebes. Which creature has one voice, four feet in the morning, two feet in the afternoon, and three feet at night? You better figure it out, because if you don't, she's going to eat you. If you didn't already know the answer, you're trying to figure it out right now, aren't you? Maybe I'll tell you after the service, or you can Google it or whatever. But you see, riddles do that. They, they stick with you. They engage your brain. They make you think. They make you ponder and consider possibilities. And they demand a response, some kind of response from you. And that's why in the ancient world, riddles are associated with wisdom. And riddles are keys. Once you have the key, once you know the answer, you can open the door. Open the door to the city. Open the door to the hidden treasure. Open the door to hidden wisdom, to a new world. And the person who holds the key has considerable power. Samson is the riddle maker in this story. Samson is the crafty sphinx guarding the garden of the Lord. And this is part of his calling as the promised seed to be this uh, source of wisdom and mystery in Israel. Verse 12, And Samson said to them, Let me now put a riddle to you. If you can tell me what it is within the seven days of the feast and find it out, then I will give you thirty linen garments and thirty changes of clothes But if you cannot tell me what it is, then you shall give me 30 linen garments and 30 changes of clothes. Remember, they didn't have Old Navy or Target, so clothes and changes of clothes were uh, valuable commodities. And they said to him, put your riddle that we may hear it. And he said to them, out of the eater came something to eat. Out of the strong came something sweet. All right, now that one's easy for us, but that's because we know what Samson just did, right? We know where he got the sweet thing to eat and what he killed, but these people didn't know that. Samson didn't tell even his parents, so we see that this riddle, it confounds the Philistines. In three days, they could not solve the riddle. So they're thinking about this riddle every day for three days and then for a week. They're mulling it over. They're racking their brains. And that's what Samson wanted. He wanted to elicit a response from them. See how wise they are. Verse 15. On the fourth day, they said to Samson's wife, Entice your husband to tell us what the riddle is, lest we burn you and your father's house with fire. Have you invited us here to impoverish us? Now think about what's going on here. The Philistines fear Samson will impoverish them. And clothes, like I said, were valuable, but think of each of them would only have to give one garment and one change of clothes, right? If Samson's on the losing side of this, he's on the hook for 30. Uh, So who's taking the greater risk? Now despite this, the Philistines resort to cheating. They are not solving the riddle. They're just trying to get a look at the answer guide. They don't have Siri. They don't have Google. So they have to threaten Samson's wife. Now, who threatens the woman if not the serpent? We're starting to see the Philistines' true colors here. The other thing that I want you to see is that this Philistine girl now has a choice. right? Samson's proposal to her is a genuine act of evangelism. He offers to take her as his bride, and that would mean bringing her under his protection and under his provision. And so she has the choice of putting her trust in Samson and in Samson's God, or siding with her people, the same people who just threatened to burn down her father's house. So siding with the Philistines for her would mean betraying the sanctity of her marriage covenant. What will she do? Verse 16. And Samson's wife wept over him and said, You only hate me. You do not love me. You have put a riddle to my people, and you have not told me what it is. And he said to her, Behold, I have not told my father nor my mother, shall I tell you? She wept before him the seven days that their feast lasted. And on the seventh day he told her because she pressed him hard. Then she told the riddle to her people. Okay, so we see this girl's true colors as well. When push comes to shove, she's not going to be faithful to her husband, but to her fellow Philistines. Verse 18, and the men of the city said to him on the seventh day before the sun went down, what is sweeter than honey? What is stronger than a lion? And he said to them, if you had not plowed with my heifer, you would not have found out my riddle. So Samson the Sphinx even answers with a riddle, doesn't he? But his point is clear. You stole, you cheated, you violated the sanctity of my household to get your answer. So you need to understand that Samson was seeking an opportunity against the Philistines, and now he has it. There's this provocative marriage proposal to a Philistine woman, There's the confounding riddle that everybody's thinking about and talking about. This is a public way of prodding the Philistines, of getting them to reveal their hearts, getting them to show their true colors, not just for Samson's benefit, but for the people of Israel. And we learn that the Philistines have no desire to be married to Yahweh. They do not value the covenant. They will not ponder and meditate on Yahweh's word to gain wisdom They would rather burn down their sister's house than humble themselves before an Israelite. Philistia has shown her scales. It's time for the seed of the woman to crack some skulls. And so the fiery breath of God is kindled once again. Verse 19, and the spirit of the Lord rushed upon him and he went down to Ashkelon and struck down 30 men of the town and took their spoil and gave the garments to those who had told the riddle. Samson holds up his end of the bargain. He is faithful to his word. After all, he never said where he would get 30 garments and changes of clothes. And just as with the honey from the lion, Samson doesn't tell the Philistines at Timnah where this plunder came from. He doesn't tell them that these are the spoils of war taken from their brothers in arms at Ashkelon, another Philistine city. So there's another riddle for them to try and solve. Leviticus 24 says, "If anyone injures his neighbor as he has done, it shall it be as he has done; it shall be done to him. Fracture for fracture, eye for eye, tooth for tooth." It was the foundation of ancient law, especially where mercy had been offered and rejected. And Samson carries that law out here. Philistia violated his household and stole from Samson. Samson repays them in kind. Now, interpreters are often tempted to come to this passage and accuse Samson of being immoral, right? He lusts after a forbidden marriage. He gives in to the pleadings of his wife. He, uh, his pride is hurt when the riddle is solved, and so then in a fit of rage, he murders and he steals to pay his debt. But that's reading against the grain of what the text itself says. The text takes pain to point out that Samson does these things under the influence of the Spirit. In fact, he is only able to do these things because the Spirit is with him. It is God who births and raises Samson up to be a judge in Israel. He's not supposed to be flawless. He isn't perfect. He isn't supposed to be gentle or polite. He's the tent peg and hammer of God aimed at the serpent head of Philistia. And it is the breath of God that breathes forth parables and dark sayings from Samson. And he does it to further harden the stone hearts of these new pharaohs. It is precisely through Samson's dramatic and provocative acts that God is confirming for the people of Israel what he's been telling them all along. You cannot settle for a halfway conquest. The Philistines will never be steadfast groomsmen and faithful brides for you. They are barn burners, cattle thieves, snakes in the grass. Are you going to step on them or continue to let them devour your young? Samson is the spirit-fueled little son leading the way to a new day for Israel. Now, Samson himself is a riddle. It's hard to know what to make of him, and as I said, he's far from perfect, as we will see next week. Like many of the judges, he starts out well, and then things start to go poorly, but I think maybe his failings sometimes prevent us from seeing him in the right light, and I say this because the writer of Hebrews, as we read this morning, marks Solomon as a hero of the faith, And the gospel authors are glad to present Jesus as the new and greater Samson. So let's try to view Samson that same way. Both Samson and Jesus' births were prophesied by an angel of the Lord. In both cases, the angel says they will save their people. In both cases, their mother had no reason to expect a child. And this is infinitely more the case for the Virgin Mary. So in both cases, God shows power where human flesh fails. The Spirit of the Lord falls on Samson early and often. He is the most Spirit-filled man in the Old Testament. No one comes close until Jesus. For Jesus is himself conceived by the Holy Spirit. And he is, of course, one with both the Father and the Spirit. And Jesus is not only empowered by the Spirit for his mighty deeds on earth, but Jesus then pours out that Spirit upon his church. He makes all his disciples little Samson's, little sons, to go out and conquer in his name. Jesus is the one born of the Spirit. Like Samson, Jesus is a bridegroom. He's a bridegroom who sets his heart on an unfaithful bride who offers to take her into his household and protect her from the flames. And Jesus' love exceeds the boundaries of Jew and Gentile for he comes to cut off sin and death once for all in circumcision of his cross. Like Samson, Jesus is a teller of riddles. A great and mighty sphinx the key of David, the guardian of the gate of heaven. Jesus speaks in parables. He speaks in dark sayings of old. His words confuse and confound his enemies, as we saw in our gospel readings this morning. He reveals their blindness. He reveals their hardness of heart. But for those who hear his parables with ears of faith, his words are sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. Jesus reveals to us that our own hearts are hardened by sin, trying to cheat our way to the reward. He shows us that we cannot live in peace with our idols, for they will devour us if we do. He inspires us to war with our sin and hold fast to the word. And like Samson, Jesus is the bigger lion. The devil prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. But Jesus is the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David who has conquered. He tears the predator by the power of the spirit. He crushes the head of the serpent under his nail-pierced foot. So Christian, trust that Jesus is the greater Samson. He is the son of righteousness that rises in his might with healing in his wings. He is our judge, born to save us from the hands of our enemies, Satan, sin, and death. Let us receive his love. Let us meditate on his honeyed words. Let us cling faithfully to our mighty bridegroom, to our redeemer, to the spirit-filled seed of the woman. Let us pray. Lord Jesus, thank you for braving the lion-stocked vineyard in order to win your bride. Thank you for your challenging word, which exposes the idols of our hearts. Thank you for tearing our oppressor to save us. Breathe your spirit into us and accomplish your mighty deeds through us, that all the world may come to know you as Lord and Savior. We pray in your name. Amen. We now continue to worship our God by giving ourselves to him in the form of our tithes and offerings. Uh, Instructions are on the screen and we'll prepare to come to the Lord's table. you now rise we'll sing the doxology praise God Let us pray. Heavenly Father, you have given yourself to us in the person of your dear Son, Jesus Christ. We now give ourselves to you, united with him, that you may use our gifts for the advancement of his kingdom, both here and throughout the world, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated.